0: 2 beginning in verse 8 see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ for in him in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father, now bless these few moments. Uh, Lord, we we heard this morning uh, about the day of the Lord. And we know that day is coming. Uh, Father, we know that as your people we should rejoice in that, but we also know that as your people uh, we should be uh, making ourselves ready for that day. So we pray that these few moments would be used to that end, that you would fit us uh, not just for eternity, but, Father, you would fit us uh, for the day of the Lord that we know uh, will come. For we ask this now in his name. Amen. When our kids were young we read one chapter of the Chronicles of Narnia every night at bedtime. And because we have two very different children, we had to do two very different kinds of reading. We almost would have to tie Gabrielle to her bed. She did not want to miss anything. And so when you read Gabrielle, the Chronicles of Narnia, you read to her in a voice like this that was slow and soothing because we wanted her to chill out possibly go to sleep before we turned 50. Nathaniel, though, Nathaniel was the kid, the minute you put him in bed and gave him his pacifier, he was like, okay, I'm out. So when you read the books for Nathaniel, you kind of had to do a bit of actor's theater and do the voices and do anything to try to keep the boy awake. Well, All of that means that over the course of their growing up, Amy and I have read through all seven of the books, and we did so multiple times. And when you read them out loud, and when you read them over and over, you develop favorites. And it was very interesting to me to see how my favorite book changed from when I was a boy. If you'd asked me to rate them when I was a boy, I would have told you The Last Battle was my least favorite, And The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was probably my favorite, followed by The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, followed by Caspian. But as a dad, that order changed dramatically. Now, my favorite of the Narnia books became The Horse and His Boy, followed by The Magician's Nephew, followed by The Silver Chair. Now, if you know about Narnia, then you know that The Magician's Nephew is Lewis' creation account. But The Horse and His Boy is something entirely different it's one of the Narnia books that occurs almost entirely outside of Narnia and the main characters namely the Pevensey children Peter Susan Edmund and Lucy they're not children anymore and they're not even the main characters in the book they're young adults is the royal court of Narnia the reason though I love the horse and his boy is it's a story of God's providence. We see Aslan's hand at work in the life of a boy who thinks his name is Shasta, the son of a fisherman in Colorman. In reality, though, he's not Shasta, the son of a fisherman. No, the truth is, he's he's Crown Prince Kor of Arkanland. And how he makes that discovery with the help of Erebus, a young noblewoman, and two talking Narnian horses is the plot of this amazing and wonderful story. If you've not read it, I would commend it to you. And if you've not read it to your children, Jesus will forgive you. Now, can you imagine living that way? On the one hand, you live your life thinking you're the only son of a poor fisherman. But the reality of who you are is something so great you can't even imagine it. The reality of your identity completely will completely blow your mind. In our text for this morning, Paul wants the Colossians to remember who they are. And in our text, he gives the people of God a command. Verse 8, look at again, if you would please. See to it that no one takes you captive. That's a command. It's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. No, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying, listen, don't be hijacked. Don't let your faith be taken captive. Well, Paul, how are we to do that? Are we just supposed to do more and try harder? Are we supposed to be ever vigilant? Like, what's, what's going on? How do we do this? Well, he grounds that command in a beautiful truth. He reminds them of their identity in Jesus Christ. He reminds them of who they are. Paul wants to make sure that their faith is not going to be hijacked by religious snake oil salesmen who have the audacity to dispute the main subject of this beautiful book, namely that Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient. So Paul was telling them, listen, don't, you're forgetting who you are. Don't forget it. You think you're the only son of a poor fisherman in calorman, but you, the reality of who you are is so great. You can't hardly even imagine it. So our big idea for this morning then is this. Remembering your identity in Christ will hijack proof your faith. Remembering your identity in Christ will hijack proof your faith. Now it's interesting, isn't it? Because we live in a day and time in which uh, we seem to be all about identity. And we like the idea that my identity can be whatever I want it to be that I can identify or I can create my own persona, my own identity. Okay, fine, whatever. But Paul is reminding us here of a wonderful truth that isn't just so that our faith won't get hijacked. But friends, let's understand, there's also a sense in which this truth constrains us. Here's what I mean by that. If I am in Christ, then the Bible defines my identity, not me. Not the culture. Not my family of origin. Not my parents. Not my spouse. Not my work. Not what I choose to eat or not eat. Not any other decisions I might make. No, my identity is first, foremost, and fundamentally found in Jesus Christ. So, let's look at that identity. In verses 8-10, to we see the fullness that is ours in Christ. Now, Paul's told them, hey, listen, I don't want you to get hijacked. I don't want you to be taken captive. It's a term that literally speaks of the spoils of war. I don't want you to be snatched up and taken away by philosophy or empty deceit. Now, there's nothing wrong with philosophy per se. Paul isn't somehow banging on philosophy, Christianity is a philosophy. It makes holistic claims about the nature of reality and offers guidance then for living in that reality. How do we live in light of the truth that the Bible presents to us? But at the same time, we have to understand that Christianity is more than a philosophy. It's the recounting of the work that God has done, is doing, and will do through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the philosophy that Paul's going to warn us against, he wants us to know that, def- that deceit is the defining characteristic. Again, he uses a really loaded term when he says, uh, no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That word empty deceit uh, is a word that was used to talk about underhanded business practices that were engaged in intentionally. Right? Sometimes, I, I don't know, uh, this is the season, I, I did it yesterday with fear and trembling and trepidation. Uh, I did our taxes. My fear every year is that I will do something inadvertently wrong that will get me audited. Well, that's very different from knowing exactly what's going on and trying to game the system. And I hate to say cheating the IRS, but yeah, you would seek to cheat the IRS. Well, that's the picture that Paul is painting. These are people who through sleight of hand are intentionally trying to carry God's people away. This is not because of ignorance or a lack of skill. No, they know exactly what they're doing. So Paul then says, hey, listen, the remedy of this, the remedy for what's going on is to remember your fullness. To remember, first of all, Christ's fullness. And then the fact that we possess Christ fully. Do you note the repetition there? He says in verse 9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then in verse 10, And you have been filled in Him. Christ is fully God. And you have been filled with Christ. So Paul wants us to know there are two things then that we need to remember. There are two things that we need to understand about this fullness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to understand, first of all, that they already possess all of Jesus that they're going to have on this side of heaven. What it means then to be sanctified and to grow in grace is that we become more like Christ, not that somehow Christ manages to cram more of Himself in us. No, when the Spirit enters us at the point in which uh, we, by grace, through faith, receive the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Spirit comes into us, we get all of the Spirit. Now, we need to grow in grace, Sometimes uh, folks will put it this way. Uh, we possess all of Jesus that we're going to have, but that doesn't always necessarily mean that Jesus possesses all of us. Right? There are areas in our life in which we find we are continually needing to go before the Lord and repent and believe and trust the gospel. There are a myriad of ways in which we uh, need to be transformed to look more and more like Jesus Christ. But what Paul wants us to understand is, listen, uh, Colossians, there isn't some sort of higher knowledge that you need to have that you somehow don't possess. There's not some kind of mystery fullness that's out there that you don't have that these snake oil salesmen can clue you in on. No, you possess all of Christ that you're going to have on this side of heaven. There is no deeper Christian life Do you need to grow in grace? Yes. But at the point of conversion, when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you, you get Christ in all of his fullness. But that also means he's going to go on to say that not only have we be filled in him, but he goes on to say, who is the head of all rule and authority? He's going to make this point again, just in case we might miss it. And it's this that because we are filled with Christ and because Christ is the fullness of God, we then share with Jesus all that he has won. So, everything that Christ has done, everything that Christ has accomplished, all the enemies that Christ has defeated, if we are in Christ, we have defeated them as well. And not us but we get to be along for the ride. Several years ago, the uh, my, my junior year in high school, we played for a state championship. And so, in, I think 2015, uh, the team I played on, we were inducted into the Fremont High School Athletic Hall of Fame, which meant we got to have lunch at the club. There was another group that was being in, uh, inducted into the uh, Fremont High Hall of Fame. It was a... Uh, uh, one of the classes from the early 90s who won, I think they won like three state track championships in a row. And so they'd taken time and they'd done sort of years individually. And so a friend of mine uh, was asked to basically speak for the team at this Hall of Fame induction speech. And so he stood up and he did a really nice job. He talked first about some of the great things about being a part of the program. And there was a particular vibe and a particular ethos around the program. And everybody else had really cool-looking swag. And Fremont High would show up in these old ratty gray sweats. Because we weren't here to look good. We were here to beat the fool out of you. And that's what they did. And so he talked about the program and he talked about the ethos and he talked about how kids from Fremont were just kind of scrappy and that was their identity and that's what they did. And then he finally got to what was the real truth about the thing. He said, well, here's the deal. Yeah, all those things helped us be a great team, but here was the reality. We had two guys named David I. Teffa and Sean O'Connor. And between the two of them, they won like eight gold medals at the state track meet like three years in a row. Those two guys alone would have won the Class A state championship by themselves. That's what Paul is telling us that we have in Christ. Jesus has won this fantastic victory. He's going to tell us this again. And if we are in Christ, then the fullness of that is ours. Friends, we're on the winning team. Just like Fremont High had David Itefa and Sean O'Connor who could have won the championship by themselves. We have the fullness of deity and we have been filled with Him, namely Christ. Don't get hijacked by those who are trying to tell you there's something else out there. There's not. Jesus Christ is supreme. Jesus Christ is sufficient. And you have fullness in Christ. Secondly, he wants them to understand their fellowship with Christ. Now, again, to their credit, the false teachers were at least saying, hey, let's talk about your relationship with Jesus. Yeah, it's one thing to go, hey, listen, all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, and Jesus dwells in me, and that's great. But they're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa but don't you understand, there's, there's a relational component to this. Yes, Jesus has defeated sin and death and the devil. Yes, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. But let's talk about how you relate to him. And so they were promoting circumcision as a means, as a sign to say, "Jesus, look at how serious I am in our relationship with you in my relationship with you. I'm willing to undergo circumcision as a Gentile." Because it shows how deeply committed I am to walking with you. Now, Paul refutes their argument by reminding the Colossians that, hey, this circumcision that you've already received in Christ, you don't need to undergo physical circumcision because you have a better circumcision, you have a deeper circumcision. You have the circumcision that's promised in the New Covenant. You have the circumcision that's spoken of in Jeremiah chapter 4 in which God promises that His people who have these hard hearts instead are going to have hearts that will be circumcised. The Apostle Paul picks up on that theme in Romans chapter 2 as he's speaking to the Jews. He says, look, you want to claim it's great. We have the circumcision. Yes, you have circumcision of the flesh but what really matters is a circumcised heart so paul tells the corinthians hey if you want to talk about your relationship with christ if you want to talk about the fellowship that you have with christ and you want to point to circumcision do you not understand verse 10 that uh, excuse me verse 11 that you were circumcised in him with a circumcision made without hands that christ himself the spirit of christ himself Has brought about this promised circumcision that's going to accompany the new covenant. And then they're going to talk about baptism. So it isn't just circumcision they want to talk about, they also want to talk about baptism. And Paul says, hey, you want to talk about baptism? Great, let's do it. Here's what's going on in baptism. Uh, Baptism is not a statement of your fidelity, it's not a statement of your desire for a relationship with Jesus. Baptism is a statement of what God has done. Not what you're doing. It's a covenant symbol in which we're speaking of God's work. Do you know too, he uses, look at verse 12. Uh, notice the tense of the verb, having been buried. With him in baptism. In which you were also raised. Raised. See, Paul wants them to understand that all that baptism symbolizes, all that baptism points us to, Paul wants them to understand that these things that are pictured in their baptism, that they were buried with Christ, it's the work of the Spirit that makes that picture a reality. It's not anything they're doing. It's what God has done. Friends, we're going to come to the table a little later this morning, and I'm really thankful that when I come to the table, the table is not a statement of my faith and my goodness and my desire to follow Jesus. Because some days, it's not very great. Here's what the table is, though. The table is God saying to us, through tangible things, things that we can touch, things that we can taste, things that we can smell, things that we can feel. God is saying to us, I am your God and you are my people. And I am so committed to this covenant relationship that my son is going to shed his blood on your behalf. This is not about anything that they're doing. It's not about telling God that they're really, really into Him and they're really into their relationship with Jesus and they really, really want to show how earnest and sincere they are. they are. Now, Paul points out that this is work God has already done in Christ. And it's work that He's already applied to your life through His Spirit. And it's work that He continues to bring about through His Spirit. Did you note verse 12? I I love how he puts it. You were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of yourself. That's not what he says, is it? Who's working? What's it say? In the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead friends when we have fellowship with Christ it means that in the same way God the Father worked to bring to new life God the Son he will do the same for us our fellowship with Christ is not brought about by our own desire or our own uh, longing for a deeper relationship with God now please understand that's not a bad thing But my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and my relationship with the triune God is predicated upon and continues to grow through what he has done, through what he is doing, and through what he will do. Thirdly, then, he wants them to remember that they have freedom through Christ. He tells them in verse 13, you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with him. Now there's a good news, bad news reality to that statement. On the one hand, you go, great, I'm alive. Here's the bad news. You're guilty and deserving of death. So is God going to bring you back to life through his spirit? in order to condemn you for the ways in which you have broken his law. Now it's interesting too to note in verses uh, 13 through 15, uh, the subject changes, right? We're not talking about what Christ has done. In verses 13 to 15, he's talking about what God the Father has done through the person and work of Jesus. So you were once dead. But God the Father has made you alive. Again, good news, bad news. Okay, I'm alive. I get to face trial. I've committed things. I've done things that are worthy of death. That's why the second half of verse 13 through the end of verse 15 is some of the most hopeful passages in all of the Bible. Why has God brought us back to life? Look at verse 13. He has forgiven us all our trespasses. He's brought us back to life not to condemn us, but to forgive us. Let's go back. Let's talk about that question of relationship. I think we all know that if, you, uh, if, if, if you're in a relationship with somebody and something has happened and one party can't forgive the other party, It's not going to get very far. But the idea here is that, again, my relationship with God is made possible because through Christ, he has forgiven me. Your relationship with God is made possible because through Christ, he has forgiven you. But not only that, in verse 14, he tells us he's canceled the record of debt stood against us with its legal demands. You're saying, well, what's that mean? Does it just mean like uh, you owe God $50,000 in bad credit card debt? Or is this like God's like some sort of cosmic IRS in your way behind and he's going to send some guy to start garnishing your wages? No, in the ancient world, if you got into debt with someone uh, of a significant sum and you could not pay them, instead of restructuring the debt or declaring bankruptcy, here's what would happen. You would go to prison. And you would stay in prison until you could pay the debt off. Now, let's just, we we stopped doing this for obvious reasons, right? Uh, What kind of work can you do in prison? Not much. So they finally realized, hey, if we send these people to prison as a punishment, What happens is, we never get paid. So they stopped doing it. Well, when Paul was writing to the Colossians, debtor's prison was still a thing. And he wants them to understand that in Christ, the debt that we owed, that stood against us, that had legitimate legal demands and claims upon our personage, that was canceled. It's gone. Jesus tells a number of wonderful parables to illustrate that for us, doesn't he? Talks about the the servant who owed a certain amount. And and when the master came back, the master said, how much did you owe? Fine. Hey, I'm going to forgive you that. (laughs) But then later that same servant goes out because somebody owed him like just just a minute amount of what he owed to the master. And he's telling him, Hey, if you don't pay me, I'm going to throw you in prison. And Jesus is like, really? That's, that's how you want to receive the grace of my Father? Well, how does all of this divine largesse come about? How is it that God can be this forgiving? How is it that God can be uh, so gracious in order to not only forgive us, but to cancel our debt. He tells us, doesn't he? he? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friends, you're forgiven because Christ was condemned. Your debt is canceled because Christ paid it with his own life. When we took Gabrielle back to school this year, we went uh, with her to her church. Uh, She attends uh, an Anglican church in uh, Jackson. It's called All Saints, but in typical uh, Christian college kid humor, they refer to it as All Sinners. Uh, So she goes to All Sinners, Technically all saints, but uh, that's where she goes. And it was interesting, the week that we were there, they had the children come up for the children's sermon and they were talking about different things that are going on in our life. And the, uh, the person giving the children's sermon said, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Whenever you think about something that's, that's sinful or something that's really discouraging, I want you to say, and I cast it to the cross. And I cast it to the cross. And then he took the whole congregation through it. And there was actually a liturgical reading, right? So all these fears I have, I cast them upon the cross. All the anxieties I have about family or work or uh, our, our setting as a nation, I cast them to the cross. And we went through, and for probably two minutes, we were casting those things upon the cross. Now, I know it sounds a little hokey, but you know what? It's a beautiful picture of what Paul is giving us. You need to be forgiven relationally. And legally, you're in a world of hurt. What did God do? He cast it upon the cross. It's been nailed there. It's been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. I love how Paul ends it. Okay, that's great. My relationship with God has been made right. I am relationally now in a place with my Creator that I have never been. But here's the problem. I have other enemies. I have other adversaries. In fact, Abby read it for us in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve had a wonderful relationship with God the Father. They walked with Him. They talked with Him. They hung out together in the garden. And yet, in the midst of that unspoiled, wonderful place, here comes the serpent. Here comes the adversary. Here comes the deceiver. And Eve was absolutely right when she said, the serpent deceived me. And God says, listen, not only did Jesus Christ make my relationship with you as my creation good, but all of your enemies outside of me have also been defeated. The great promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 when he says to the serpent, You're going to bruise his head, or you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. It's come true. All of our enemies have been defeated. As Paul's going to point out in that wonderful text that we'll probably look at this Easter Sunday in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? It's been swallowed up. Christ has defeated all of our enemies. He he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Friends, we get to remember that wonderful act of victory. We get to remember what it is that God did on our behalf in order to forgive us and to cancel our debt. We get to come to the table. And there we remember not only that Jesus Christ had his body broken and his blood shed, but there we also get to remember that there's coming there's going to be another table. There's going to be a great feast. There's going to be a wedding feast. And then we will be like him, Paul tells us, for we will see him As he is. Remember who you are. Remember that your identity is not dictated by the culture. Or by your family. Your identity is not dictated to you by your own imagination. Or by your own sense of biological drives or longings or urgings. No, if you are here this morning and you are a Christian. Your identity is in Christ, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and with whom you have been filled. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious truth. Lord, as we as we hear increasingly about uh, these contrasting and conflicting claims about identity that are being made in our culture. And as uh, socially conservative people who live in a largely red state, as, we, uh, as as there's this great temptation to get sucked into this kind of identity politics, Father, uh, help us always to remember that our chief and primary identity is that we are in Christ. We are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, and so we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and we bear the image of our Creator. But we are also in Christ, which means we are a new creation. And that new creation is our fundamental identity. We thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. We thank you for what you are doing for us in Christ. And we bless you for what we know is yet to come. Not only through what Christ has done, but in the way that you showed your faithfulness to him. We know that you will be equally faithful to us. So we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.